Wasn't too long ago, I was sitting on a porch discussing philosophy with a new friend. And my friend asked the question of the lawyer in our text this morning. What must I do? My friend was asking about how to please God, how to make God happy with you apart from faith, outside of believing. Religion, he said, is really just a set of rules that that helps society to function well. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't murder, don't steal, don't envy, live a moral life, etc. This is what religion is, he said. And so because this is what pleases God, I must be able to please him while living outside of faith. By living a life that brings some benefit to society. Well, my friend and I have very different understandings of the purpose of religion. His question made me smile. How often have I heard that question? How often have I asked that question? What must I do? What do I have to do to please God? What do I have to do to make sure that God will look on me with favor? What do I have to do to get to heaven? How often have you asked the question, what must I do? How does Jesus respond? He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? To which the man responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then tells him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. And then comes the question that launches our parable this morning. And who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story of a man walking the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, to us here today, that sounds just like another long, dusty, dirty road. We figure maybe there's some hills, but I've always typically pictured a long, dusty, boring road that in this case happened to have some robbers hanging out alongside it. But the reality is that for the people of the day, this road was well known. And its name was the Way of Blood. The Way of Blood. This was a very dangerous road. This nameless man in our story this morning, he should have known better. Everyone knew that violent robbers and thieves continued to patrol this road. Everyone knows that it is unwise to walk, to travel here. In church, we have a phrase that that probably gets a bit overused. But we say that someone who has an active relationship with God, who has put their faith in God, is walking with the Lord. You are walking the correct path, the right path. And should you not have a relationship with God, then you are walking on the wrong path. You are walking on a dangerous path, a path where trouble lies in wait, a path where temptation hides. You are walking the way of blood. The way of blood is the wrong path. When a person travels this road between Jerusalem and Jericho, they are asking for trouble in the eyes and minds of the crowd listening to Jesus' story. And we can relate to that. We understand that. Some may even go as far as to say, if you are walking that road, then you get what you deserve. You get what's coming to you. 
But if this is where we go, then are we not simply fooling ourselves? For who of us can walk the road of morality perfectly? Who of us can keep God's commands perfectly? Who of us can consistently and steadfastly reject our vices? Who of us in our walk with the Lord never stray to a different road for a few minutes, for a few hours, or even years in some cases? It's easy, it's tempting to act like we aren't familiar with each bend in the road. Like we don't know the shops, the entertainments that line these streets. But none of us has walked with the Lord perfectly. Not a single one of us has stayed perfectly true to the road of morality, the road of worship, the road that brings glory to the living God, the road that God desires us to walk. None of us has stayed perfectly true to this road because each of us is a sinner. This week at VBS during story time, I made that that comment that that everyone is sinful, that, that even me, the pastor of the church, is a dirty, rotten sinner. And man, those little kids' eyes got real wide. A few mouths dropped open. Even the pastor? Absolutely the pastor. And it was actually kind of a it was kind of a fun moment because as I'm expressing my sinfulness, letting them know that that I struggled just like everybody does. One of the little boys in the front, he he raises his hand. I was like, okay. Uh, I don't really know where this is going. I was like, yeah, what's what's going on? He's like Alan and I stole brownies this afternoon off the, off the kitchen table. And I was like, dude, you're forgiven, brother. You're forgiven, just like the rest of us. It was just this fantastic. And then other hands started going up, right? Oh, I've, I've done this, and I've, and I've done this. And it's like, hey, you're, <laughs> you're forgiven. This is wonderful. Let's, let's just all get together and, and, and talk about that. But then our time ran out. But it, it, was, it was really good. It was awesome, but the, the reality, the recognition, even the understanding that our sin and, and admitting that our sin is, is, is something that we commit, that, that we are sinful people, watching that manifest in these kids, recognizing that, that, that they see confession, how that opens doors, right? Confessing that I am a sinner. And now they're like, I, I can confess that too. I can admit that I struggle, that I, in my life, at times, walk the way of blood, walk the path that I'm not supposed to walk, do the things that I am not supposed to do. Each of us is familiar with the way of blood. Each of us has walked that path, sometimes in short intervals, sometimes for longer intervals, and some of us for most of our lives. And along that path waits a robber. Along that path, waits the thief. For many of us, when we hear the story of the man getting beaten and robbed and left half dead on the road, it sounds like a crime of opportunity, right? The, the robber happened upon an unsuspecting traveler and took advantage of the situation. But it's much deeper and much more sinister than that. Daniel Emery Price, in his chapter on this parable, writes this. He says, Desperate men are not the only thieves and murderers among us. There's a scene in the 2003 movie Luther where a young boy commits suicide. According to the Roman church, suicide is a mortal sin and he was condemned to
to hell. Then Martin Luther makes this profound statement. He says, some say that according to God's justice, this boy is damned because he took his own life. I say he was overcome by the devil. Is this child any more to blame for the despair that overtook him than an innocent man who was murdered by a robber in the woods? Is this child any more to blame for the despair that overtook him than an innocent child who was murdered by a robber in the woods. Jesus tells us that Satan, the devil, is a thief and a robber and a murderer, and he isn't happening upon us by mistake. His attacks are intentional. He is vicious and he is effective, and his attacks can leave us devastated, half dead, lying on the side of the road. And while attacks like depression and anxiety can take place no matter the road that we are walking, there is a special warning, or this is a special warning, for those walking the way of blood. This is a special warning for those of us prone to wander where we shouldn't. This account of an attack by a robber isn't just the equivalent of being jumped in a back alley. This is an account of a person who is traveling the road of life in a dangerous direction, and there is a murderous robber out there who has beaten them, and he has left them for dead. And as our traveler is lying on the side of the road, bleeding out, along comes what should be help, right? What should be some help. On two separate occasions, people walk by. One is a priest, and one is a Levite. Now, both priests and Levites are members of the religious organization of the day, the religious organization that our beaten traveler belongs to. But as they see the traveler lying in a bloody heap on the side of the road, they have to weigh the risks of getting involved. First, if they help the man, then people will know that they were walking this road. No respectable priest or Levite would be seen here. So there's an inherent danger to their reputation or a danger to their profession should they be found to be seen in this place following this particular road. Secondly, helping this traveler will take some time. And as he has proven with his current condition, there is a robber about. So it would be the wisest course of action to be moving on quickly so as to help avoid becoming the next victim. And thirdly, helping is messy. How many times have my sons been sick and as I am helping them to the bathroom, they get sick all over me? How many times have they skinned their knees and as I am carrying them home, some of the blood stains my shirt, stains my clothes? Helping can be messy, and we could get some of that mess on us. We could get entangled in some of that mess. And often that mess is very unenjoyable. Both the priests and the Levites are ceremonially clean to to help this man and being getting some of this blood on them. And it would mean becoming religiously unclean, ceremonially unclean. It would mean doing things that strict adherence to their religion 
would not allow. And so the risk is too great. The risk of exposure, the risk of attack, the risk of getting dirty. All of this leads the priest and the Levite to stay as far from the beaten traveler as possible. As they pass him on the far side of the road. And then continue on their way. Now to this point in the story, Jesus has not told his listeners, has not told us who the neighbor is. Instead, Jesus has been telling us who we are. Jesus is telling us who we are. You see, we are simultaneously the nameless man left for dead on a dangerous path away from God and the priest and Levite who are unwilling to dirty ourselves with others who have been overcome by sin and the devil's murderous work. And though at first we may recoil from that and say, no way, Pastor, you've, <laughs> you've got this one wrong as we sit in it. As we sit in the reality of our sin, the reality of our brokenness, we know, we know that it is true. We remember the times that we've traveled the way of blood, hoping that no one would notice. We remember the times that we frequented the shops along the street and walked the bends in her road. Feeling safe that we are doing this, that what we are walking is done in secret. And we've been attacked, beaten, and robbed by our sin and by the devil. And we are helpless, the helpless, bloody result of sin alive and active in the world today. And at the same time, we are the priest and the Levite. We have seen others fall as we walk along the way of blood. And instead of being present, instead of helping with healing, instead of assisting in the ways that we can, we move on quickly. For we are so concerned with our reputation, with our own safety, and our desire to keep messy entanglements out of our lives. And then Jesus introduces the main figure in our story this morning, the Samaritan. Now the title is Samaritan because of this story. I mean, it hits us in a good place. Samaritan in our culture and our society today is directly associated with helping, with bringing help to those who need it. Samaritan's Purse, for example, is a Christian humanitarian organization that brings relief to people all over the world who are in desperate need. We even have good Samaritan laws that protect people from being sued when they are trying to help out and it goes poorly. Today, being a Samaritan is seen as being a helper but that's not the way that Jesus' audience heard it. To those hearing this story from the mouth of Jesus, a Samaritan was a heretic. They held with some unsavory worship practices, and Samaria had become a hiding place for Jewish outlaws and outcasts. We see in other places, notably the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, that Samaritans and Jews did not interact with each other. They did not spend time together. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman from Samaria, for a drink? The woman asks Jesus. Jews did not interact with Samaritans. Samaritans were seen as unclean and unsavory. And so while Jesus undoubtedly made the hero of the story a Samaritan to offend the confident religious leaders, this choice also gives us a bigger picture of his audience. 
Jesus was not just telling this story to those who were opposing him that day, but also to those who were following him. You see, in the previous chapter in Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 to 55, we read the story of a time that Jesus and his disciples entered a settlement of Samaritans. But the Samaritans did not receive them well. And in response, James and John asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Lord, these people disrespected you. We should totally go all Sodom and Gomorrah on them and just wipe them from the face of the earth. Let fire come down and smite these heathens. They didn't have that reaction when the Jews treated Jesus poorly. Only the Samaritans. And so we see that the parable Jesus is telling this morning is not just for the one questioning Jesus, but also for his self-righteous followers. This parable is being told for us. And while we are the broken sinner lying in our own mess on the side of the road, we shouldn't have been in the first place. And while we are the self-righteous, religiously clean leader, too concerned with our own lives to help a traveler in need, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He is the one who was rejected. He is the one who was despised by conventional religion. You see, I disagree with my philosopher friend that religion is a set of rules that help society function. And that the purpose of religion is to cause us to live lives that benefit humanity as a whole. Now, while I acknowledge that this is true of some religions, it is not true of Christianity. How do I know that it's not true? I know that it's not true because Jesus portrays himself as a Samaritan. Jesus was rejected by religion. The religious couldn't make sense out of what he was doing. Jesus didn't play by their rules. Jesus hung out with people that were rejected by society, not those that were contributing to it. He spent time with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. How was this beneficial to society as a whole? You didn't purchase attention from Jesus with your good works. It is your sinfulness, your inability that causes him to seek you out. He was rejected because he went to save those that have been outcasts, that are beaten and bleeding and laying helpless on the side of the road. Jesus was rejected because he walks the way of blood, looking to seek and save the lost. And this is where he found each of us. And he carries the bloody, beaten, undeserving loss to his church. He brings them into his family. And he is the one who paid the bill for their welcome. He paid it on the cross and he paid it with his blood. And he says that he will come back for all that he has rescued. Jesus is the good neighbor. And he counts the entire world as his neighborhood. There isn't anyone that he doesn't want to save. What a scandal. 
That Jesus would walk the way of blood, that he would seek out those who were not only trudging mindlessly along that road, but also those who are running wildly away from him down that road. What a scandal that he would be the Samaritan, rejected, despised, and that he would do all of it to save us, to bring us into his family. What ridiculousness that he didn't care who sees him, that he doesn't mess around, that he doesn't worry about the mess that gets on himself, the mess that he took on himself so that we could be clean, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be part of his family. Our God is crazy. He's totally crazy. He works counter to our culture, to our society, to those who say that we have to earn it. He has given all for you and for me. How amazing is that? How wonderful is that? How I love to be caught up in the scandal of grace. When Jesus finishes telling the story, he asks the lawyer, the religious leader, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he answered, the one who showed him mercy. To which Jesus says, you go and do likewise. As we close this morning, I'm going to read the last portion of Price's chapter on this parable. He writes, this is the part that we are prone to focus on. We see it as an admonition to be good and helpful people. But it's more than that. It must be heard in the light of the whole story. So as we go, there are things we must come to grips with if we want to be little Christs to a world left for dead. Go and know that you are dying apart from God, beaten by sin and without aid or hope. Go and know a despised and rejected God brought you back to life when all others passed you by. Go and know that in his compassion he has paid for all things necessary for you to live and has promised to return for you at an appointed time. Go and know that to love your neighbor is messy and involves wasting your perceived righteousness and reputation. Go and know that there is only one truly good Samaritan, and he goes with you. So go. Proclaim the story of the good Samaritan. Proclaim the promise of a God who loved you so much that he took on your mess. Proclaim the hope that we have in the one who was rejected for us. Proclaim the truth that no one is beyond redemption, including each of us. Amen. As we respond to the word this morning, let's stand and sing our song of response.